Welcome to Data for Future. This is episode 33. Today we have our guest, Alicia Horsch, on the show, who is the marketing data scientist at the mobile gaming company, Social Point. Meanwhile, Alicia also co-leads the Women in Data chapter of Barcelona. I learned about the company Social Point about a year ago. Being a gaming company, it has a many fascinating aspect about how it's collecting user data and analyzing the behavior and thus reacting in the most efficient way to create better user experience, to attract more attention and uh, to increase the company's flow and the user experience. On the other side, as any company nowadays has the need to, marketing is also a very important part. And when we talk about marketing analytics, Nowadays, we hear a lot of very fancy algorithms and buzzwords, such as the lifetime value, the click-through rate, the, the CPA, CPC, everything that about six months ago, I had no idea about. And since I started my job with Platform Island, we have a, a concentrated marketing effort as well. I start to open my my vision into the field. But there's just so much to learn and uh, it's, it's difficult to see which version is the best and how it works. But what's the best, a uh, better way to learn than to talk with someone who is working in the field right now. So today we are very excited to have Alicia on the show and we will learn about how she developed her career through her journey into data scientist and her current work and some reflection on the detailed methodology and her feeling about the overall they do performing data scientists and in terms of ethics and the provision of the future. Welcome to the show, Alicia. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tammy. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> so as we are getting started, why don't you introduce to everyone how you got started uh, with the data scientist career? What caught your interest in the first place and how did you move mm -hmm. along to pursue it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it all started with my, my bachelor thesis, I think. Um, I uh, graduated in business administration and was lucky enough to do an empirical um, bachelor thesis where I was mostly working with um, Stata, which is um, often used in academia. And um, I did more so like a um, empirical research um, with descriptive, descriptive statistics um, on 150,000 Kickstarter projects. Mm -hmm. um, so I was analyzing um, the the impact that the small pledge amounts on crowdfunding projects actually impact the success um, of a crowdfunding campaign um, and then I moved into a different direction actually after that I, I started a job in um, search engine marketing okay. um, which sort of you know still was very close to data and obviously I was you know still was working very closely with with data um, and I think that was also by the time I started, you know, probably 90% of my work um, happened with Google, I would say. Um, and it, it was during the time where they would launch products like um, data-driven attribution or campaign, campaign optimization um, based on different KPIs. Um, mm -hmm. So this all came very big um, at the time. And um, they would, um, we would have calls with them and they would, um, you know, say, use the recommendation of the algorithm to to optimize the campaigns, you know, and, and that got me very curious about, so what are these algorithms and, you know, what do they do and what do they know better than I do? So mm -hmm. <laughs> I started getting a little bit into, into data science and reading more about it and, yeah, eventually ended up um, back at university and did my master's in, in data science in Tilburg in the, in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of 2019, um, after I finished my master's, I, I moved to Barcelona and um, yeah, I'm now part of the marketing analytics team at Social Point, um, which who's a global uh, mobile game developer um, and with the headquarters here in, in, in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. I like when you said, 
what sparked your interest was what kind of algorithms do better than I do. And when we talk about marketing, it's always where should we put our money and how can we spend our money with higher efficiency, higher return of investment. I believe that's a like a heavy part of your work as well. You are doing analytics to better those metrics. Mm -hmm. So exactly, exactly. What are some metrics you're focusing when we talk about marketing analytics? Um, yeah, I think you were mentioning probably the most important metrics um, at the at the very beginning. Um, I think one of our most important KPIs is customer lifetime value. Um, then also, this is probably very specific to app marketing. Um, would be average revenue per um, per user, which um, which is abbreviated as ARPU, <laughs> and then obviously the 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 general, like, as you were saying before, um, click rate, conversion rate, CPI, which is the cost per install, cost per action, which is CPA. Uh, like there's all sorts of uh, KPIs that are, um, that we work with. And then obviously depending on, on the problem that we solve, we, we use um, different KPIs. Mm -hmm. um, talk about the problem you're solving like what is the final target when we talk about this KPI? Because maybe for our audience, people are not in the field, they don't really know what lifetime value is. So if we do mention those words, if necessary, we can have a brief explanation as well. Yeah, sure. I can um, go a little bit more into detail. So customer lifetime value is, um, is literally like the expected value that we that we see to receive from a customer in the in the future. So today um what is this customer um worth to us today mm -hmm. um and obviously we want to increase that i want to have it as as high as possible so our goal would be to optimize it to to maximize it in a sense mm -hmm. um and yeah and when it comes to other kpis i mean it's um click click rate or conversion rate um the same um we want to you know want to keep up the clicks and also the conversions and when it comes to cost kpis like um cost per install we obviously want to keep that as low as possible so there is um depending on the depending on the kpi we're looking at obviously there's different goals mm -hmm. um yeah so if we're looking at the user conversion funnel and how long they stayed within the platform and and the the game mm -hmm. It's like many touch points we're tracking. More specifically, mm -hmm. can you give some example of the current work you're working on and the, how do you intertwine those KPIs together to finish your analytics? Um, so we, um, yeah, work on, on, on different projects. Um, maybe one important thing that could be interesting is our business model, I guess um, we're like a, a non-subscription app. So people don't sign up and, and, and pay for something on a monthly basis. Like for example, Netflix specifically for social point or um, like an online shop as well. We never know when the people or when a customer or a user comes back into the game. So it's almost like, um, so one big thing um, um, for us is, is predicting the future. So um, time series forecasting, for example, was very helpful for um, obviously predicting user behavior in the future and, and what we can expect in the future. Time of comeback, for example, or um, LTV users, we try to predict, you know, um, based on their behavior when they come back, how long time did they spend in the app? Also, because we are, we are a gaming app, you know, um, like how many things do they collect in like game specific terms? So, for example, they can collect germs or, or gold or something like that, you know, like very user specific data. Mm -hmm. um, and then use those to make predictions and also um, <clears throat> um, prediction, prediction of retention, which is more like a game, more game data scientist space. So um, not, not necessarily marketing, but um, also would go into the prediction direction, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, and then other things that we do, which where we're quite involved in is um, experimenting and testing. Mm -hmm. um, I think I would probably see myself 
more so in that um, in that part where um, I'm a decision scientist, where I focus more on on A/B testing and um, causal impact analyses. Um, this is more like my part within the team. Um, I'm not not the person who make who's making the predictions on LTV, but um, um, yeah. So I think these are the most exciting projects I think that we have at the moment. Yeah. What can you give a specific example for A/B testing? Mm -hmm. how it's done and how do we divide the control the test group and how do we detect mm -hmm. the result mm -hmm. so ab testing is exactly as you were saying like a um, industry standard i would say it's it's used to um, um so maybe to to understand what it means so ab testing is you have two different groups and you literally um compare um different treatment of each group and then test whether one treatment has worked better than the other. And in most cases, or in actually more, all of the cases, one group is not tested at all, which is called control. Mm -hmm. um, so they um, receive the, the um, experience as always, I would say. And then, for example, um, in the test group, um, you can, you know, play or show a different landing page or you can show different creatives or you can show different offers uh, and then see what effect um, did this different offer or creative had on on those people if you directly compare it to like a um, control group mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's obviously yeah. mm -hmm. I have two questions to follow up on that because is <laughs> sure. about split into groups how do you make mm -hmm. sure the groups you're splitting is correct you know like if mm -hmm. you can have a so um, but there are so many factors <laughs> other than what mm -hmm. you're trying to test that's influencing the behavior yeah definitely so it depends on where we use it so most of our marketers probably use um platform where this group um division is probably already integrated so google if you do an experiment on google you can you know, they already do that for you. You can be sure that they um, randomize the groups and, and all of that. But if we, for example, run our own experiment, we just use a randomized function in, in R or Python to divide the people into different groups. And then we do test if the groups are significantly indifferent, meaning that it's most like you can call it like a retro analysis after you've divided the them into different groups you could test on specific kpis so for example cpi or which is the cost per install or the ltv the average or um compare if the groups are um indifferent or not mm -hmm. and then you would need a significance test for that, also depending on the KPI, the significance test would change. So mm -hmm. for example, for proportions, you use a different, which could be the conversion rate or click-through rate, you would use a different test compared to the LTV. Yeah, this is how you ensure um, that they are indifferent. Mm -hmm. Then when, I assume when you're splitting the user into group using the randomized model, you you mm -hmm. have certain parameters such as maybe the age, gender, demographic, geolocation. And more so like a list, a list of all users. And then we just split it into A or B due to a, to a random function. So when we do the group division, we actually don't look at any of the demographics. We just, you know, um, assume that the, the algorithm or the Yes, just the user ID. And then it's mm -hmm. divided into different groups and okay. then after we check if the groups are indifferent looking at different demographics or um kpis like ltv or then what conversion is rate. the randomized result is not as ideal do you just run it again until you have mm -hmm. all the kpis more or less matching for each group mm -hmm. that is a good question actually um it's been a bit of a debate in-house for us as well and um, we've been talking about it a little bit um so yeah, this could be an option to run as run the random group division as much as you know as as often as you want really, and then use the group division that fits you the best, you know. Um, but obviously, the thing is that in in some sometimes in marketing you want to have like a real time group division. So, for example, if someone this is 
this is not specific to our to our um, app now, but I'm just thinking about an e-commerce example um, where people click on an ad and then see a different um, landing page than the control group. Mm-hmm. Um, and here the group split happens like real time. And so I think that these these group divisions then are a bit more sophisticated than us using a group of users and then dividing them randomly. But if you have time and you don't need to do it real time and you want to have, want to be sure that you have a, a fair test, then mm-hmm. this could be definitely an option to run it multiple times, hundred times, thousand times, and then choose the, choose the group split that fits you mm-hmm. or that is, you know, has the lowest probability that the, the groups are indifferent if you use Bayesian. So does that mean, let's say yeah. if you split the group and then the two groups has very similar LTV, but then they have very different CPC. So would mm-hmm. you use the two group for LTV KPI tracking and, and analytics, and then you choose a new group for CPC, or you would wanna reach to an end result of both group have like almost similar LTV, CPC all the, for all the metrics? I mean, in an ideal world, you have the indifference on all KPIs, but okay. this doesn't happen. So especially in gaming, we have uh, users that we call whales or people who like very high spenders. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want, if you, for example, have one whale in each or the other group, then this obviously um, has a large effect on um, average values. Mm-hmm. This is why, for example, for LTV, we actually use a test that's based on on, on the median or, or a rank test, actually. Mm-hmm. But it's probably better to, to look at just one KPI and then be happy about that KPI. And if this is the KPI you also want to optimize, so as mm-hmm. you were saying, LTV, then this is the right one also yeah. to make the decision on and difference on. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I love when you said in the ideal world, because it's never <laughs> ideal. So that brings up no, to there are many surprises. We call it data science, but as we can see in the real world, it's never behaving like what we see in a textbook in the scientific controlled environment. So how mm-hmm. much we trust all of these fancy algorithms and models? And mm-hmm. who, ser- who do we serve this result and analytics into? Like how much should they rely mm-hmm. on them? Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that data doesn't lie. So um, I really like, um, I like it when someone has an hypothesis about a specific business case, for example. So we say, well, orange is the new logo should be orange because it's the most favorite color of everyone. And I like actually proving them wrong with data. Okay. Um, because this is <laughs> so. This is always my my approach. Like you always want to, um, you know, prove. Like this is what I mean with data doesn't lie. This is the cool thing. So um, even though that we sometimes, so the more sophisticated a algorithm gets, if you look at neural networks or um, you know even maybe like a decision tree, there is like a forest rather than just a tree. You know, it might be the more f- sophisticated it gets, the harder it is to actually interpret why it came to a specific conclusion. So in some, in some cases, I would say, yeah, we can't always describe how our algorithm got to a specific solution. But I would say if the data tells us, you know, that we collected in real life or in, you know, this mm-hmm. is very trustable, or at least I'm the one who's like, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, if that's what the data says we should yeah. you know we should go for that I like I like yeah. your answer but uh, don't hate me just to go one step further there's cases <laughs> where we are not too sure as well let's say you run a lot of incrementality test and mm-hmm. incrementality is not like a bit testing there is a black and white almost contrast mm-hmm. in the answer so it's like do we mm-hmm. have the lift of three percent five percent or ten percent it can easily change Mm. by changing the definition of certain parameters and how you measure things right so Mm -hmm. maybe we can go into that direction and explore more of the same question (laughs) yeah sure so incrementality in research i think has been around for a while Mm -hmm. and then it 
I think recently has gained attention because marketing before as well a strategy I would say that's called last click attribution yes um, which has given full credit to the last touch point of the acquisition journey so what does that mean that means that um, if you see a tv ad and then you um, go on Facebook and you see an ad of the same provider of the TV ad and you go and buy something, the full credit goes to the Facebook ad rather than TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not very fair because obviously the, the TV uh, team has spent some money and effort and you know creating it and all of that. So mm-hmm. um, I think incrementality is a, maybe a more like a more innovative or fairer way to actually account for different marketing channels. How does and it... So what it basically does, it's, so this is where we also probably come to the, to the A-B testing. Mm-hmm. Um, so measuring incrementality is, is um, doing literally like a number of experiments um, where you have the control group again with no treatment. And then you um, have a test group, which, you know, you, you, you decide, for example, to, to um, show a TV ad or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so control doesn't receive any TV advertising and test mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. In real life, this is a little bit hard to hard to do because yeah. TV, I mean, it's not very doable. Yes. But um, this just as an example, um, and then you would measure the impact TV has on, for example, conversions or um, or revenue by comparing test and control group and the revenue of test and control group or the number of, of conversions. So um, let's talk about trackable TV maybe instead of just uh, analog TV <laughs> to make yeah. this a bit more understandable. So basically I would say it is sort of um, an A-B test, um, but obviously a little bit more sophisticated in probably a number of experiments and yes and yeah definitely we have received some very um very interesting results and some of them we don't like like this is this is what i what i also meant before with the data doesn't lie you always have like a specific hypothesis this must work like if someone sees an ad here and there they must buy more you know but then actually we were proven wrong that people you know maybe haven't seen it or they're not as convinced by it um, so yes, definitely. I think, uh, yeah. I think with some the, great learnings, <laughs> yeah, the realm of advertising, there's just so many blurry points. Like you said, mm. when we talk about attribution, even with the trackable TV, there are many things that are untrackable. And when we talk about mm. multi-touch point, you can see us through Instagram, TV, Facebook, or Instagram again, and TV one more time. And then finally, there's the end. Okay, okay, maybe it's the time to buy. So the process for each customer is so different. You mentioned the traditional mm-hmm. last-click attribution is definitely not the most ideal thing at the moment. But meanwhile, mm-hmm. it's also a thing that when we talk about A-B testing, you cannot really separate the effect of other channels easily by just say, okay, your last click is not from TV, but maybe you see it like many, many steps ago. With that being said, mm-hmm. I want to ask you, if we don't have the capability of doing A-B testing to do the control test group, can we still measure the impact and will we still be able to do the incrementality test? Mm-hmm. So I think if you want to measure the impact of one specific channel, so let's say um, you want to measure how Instagram affects your user acquisition, you need to be able to isolate it. So we also had a question that we asked ourselves um, a couple of months ago. I think there's no way around isolating it in the fact that you turn off Instagram advertising for a part of the user for one part of the users and then um, um, still um, expose another group which would be the test group to it this like yeah I think the you need to be able to isolate it I mean it hurts to to turn off some investment on some of the users mm-hmm. um, but I think if you want to have like a clear understanding of how much this channel is affecting you Mm-hmm. Um, or Im- impacting your your success uh, with marketing campaigns, you yeah. need to, yeah, I think this is the fairest way you can do it. Because I think um, 
doing this is why people also doesn't don't um actually recommend doing several a b tests on at once you should do them all you know clean uh, consecutively. exactly exactly yeah. so and i'm very if you'd ask my colleagues i'm very uh i'm very precise and very specific with that um but obviously we want to run many different tests at the same time and we just need to be you know we need to understand that maybe this has an effect on our um on our results and what we see mm -hmm. and um yes but meanwhile there's also the case where as a company is impossible at this period you only run tv or you only run facebook exactly everything mm. happening in parallel and then maybe and in the yeah. middle of your a b testing one campaign not what you're measuring gets stopped is always like a messy no part. i mean you could you could um run all channels at the same time so you could have tv you could have display you could have search engine you could mm -hmm. have um youtube um and then just turn one channel off for the for the um for the test group and see what the loss what what the effect is or you have you know you want to find out whether instagram is working for you and you, you don't have it in your marketing portfolio yet mm -hmm. then i would you know this would be your control um signal i would say and then turn it on for the test group and then see what what impact it has i think this would also be fair because you isolate it in a way that you have not used it before and then you turn it off for one uh, turn it on for one group and then you mm -hmm. can see well this had a great impact or actually it didn't help us at all or something like that so yeah, yeah. i don't think that you have to turn off everything <laughs> sure, sure, sure. because that would be quite mm -hmm. i think it's quite very capacity of running advertising with all those big platforms but they are also mm -hmm. in terms of industry my company platformelon for example we mm -hmm. do not have the permission to run as freely uh, across platforms so it's a mm. little harder to tracking so, um, and then the algorithm we're thinking about using is more along the line of causal impact because it seems mm -hmm. to be a more universal and a general solution when you cannot do very mm -hmm. precise controlling mm -hmm. am i right can you give some more like introduction about cultural impact because i know you use it for your work as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly so we um use um so there's this package from from google it's called causal impact and this is um one of the um well, our packages that we use um, very frequently um, because we think it's it's very helpful to learn um, what, what what impact um, a a campaign had, especially when we cannot track the users. So, for example, um, in in surroundings like YouTube or t TV ads, uh, we you know we can't necessarily track the users, mm. and um, but also. Uh, um, yeah, need to learn on if, if, if it actually works for us, you know, if the money that we spend in those channels is, um, is, is well spent money and if we're spending it efficiently. So we're trying to, with this model, um, trying to learn what impact they have. And ideally, we don't have TV and YouTube running at the same time. And then also, you know, some other campaigns that, um, maybe driving a lot of organic users which we call them we you know they don't come through marketing um and um but that doesn't always happen so this is also an ideal world that i would like to live in but yeah, <laughs> it doesn't always happen really yes. the reality so, is much more interesting and <laughs> much more unpredictable <laughs> and it's more it's more challenging no like yeah. um i always try to get a very clean control group where I didn't have or didn't see any treatment um, and then it's almost sometimes happens like I have, I've got the results and then someone says oh yeah we also ran a tv campaign and I'm like ah okay well, yeah no, <laughs> we need sure to account for that, that is so. reliable <laughs> and when we talk <laughs> yes, about culture so. impact what's usually the time frame you're checking about I think this is like a that's a good question mm. I also was part of a, a panel actually in December where um, the other panelist, um, she was talking about 
using the causal impact model and they've been looking actually at um, over months. So two to three months. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we are trying to, um, we normally use like a four to six weeks training period or, um, and then only look at um, how, you know, starting treatment, we, we try to see as, as soon as possible um, if there was an impact or not. So um, I also have the, um, at least my experience is that after like a month or if you want to look at the treatment time, last after four weeks you can't see any impact anymore so it was sort of like the but it's very different I think also depending on the um, business problem that you're trying to solve so if you have like a campaign um, for example myself I'm I'm um, very big into to retargeting at the moment mm-hmm. um, if we run a retargeting campaign um, we're trying to do this this causal impact um, maybe on a weekly basis to check oh you know, if we're still being incremental uh, or if there, if we can see an uplift. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it depends on also the, the problem that you're looking at. Um, when you're yes. talking about your tracking campaign with the cultural impact, what are the, so you're just tracking the KPI, one KPI specifically? Yes, um, also good question um, because we've been having some well i think there's there's different um opinions out there about this so you could look at any kpi um at least if you you know you just have to settle on one um for optimization and also um yeah to to see where you are incremental so you could look at incremental conversions for example um did this treatment actually for example retargeting bring me more conversions in a specific time frame Mm -hmm. um but i'm a big fan of looking at incremental revenue so because obviously i you know want to be sure if if we've been um um yeah if we if we also return on what we spent you know um so if we're we're being profitable Mm -hmm. yes so uh, i think there is there's different opinions about that depending on also what your goal is Mm-hmm. Um, so incremental conversions, incremental clicks could also be just, um, you know, just to get more user, you could be, um, your product could be very new and you want to just get more users onto, into your app or onto your website and, um, incremental clicks could mm-hmm. be, um, very interesting for this, you know? Yeah. Cool. Then what are the, some current challenges you're facing? Because we talk about a lot uh, about the ideal world and the real world. How do you, what is your top thing that you wish they're more ideal? <laughs> yeah, so we have, um, so because it's such a, I would say, in a innovative way of measuring maybe the impact on on marketing mm-hmm. um there's no i feel like there's no single best practice in the industry yet where we can um you know 100 um rely on i would say so um there's no one methodology there's different methodologies out there that you can use there is i mean i could just throw in some some keywords here like intent to treat or um, ghost bids, or, you know, like this won't say anything to anyone. Um, and it, I think it would be going too much into detail um, if I would be explaining this, but um, I think maybe the industry is not clear about what, you know, what's what's the best working thing. And obviously that leads to a lot of discussions um, for, for all the experts, I guess. Um, and then also another thing, sometimes it's a bit difficult um, to defend um, so that's one side, having a clear methodology that works for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that a little bit, little bit challenging in the past. And mm-hmm. then also um, convincing our um, my my direct stakeholders to, um, you know, that the data that we 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 show or the results that we show mm-hmm. are not lying. And sometimes it actually means that a specific treatment is not working, but they really 
want to believe that it is. And so yeah. <laughs> um, I really have a hard time to sometimes convince them. And then if I show a p-value, it doesn't necessarily mean anything to them. Mm-hmm. So um, also maybe like a very interesting thing that I heard in the panel um, that I joined in December was um, that they had a, the, the other um, lady, she had a, she had a different or a similar experience and she was, um, she recommended um, Bayesian statistics because apparently it's much easier to sell. So um, rather yeah. than using the frequentist approach where you, you know, you receive a, a, a a, st- um, a test statistics and a, and a p-value and the p-value is maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. more uh, difficult to interpret rather than um, getting a posterior uh, um, probability where you say well it's I don't know five percent um, likely that um, a works better than b you know um, okay. which makes it a little bit easier for um, for marketeers or any stakeholder you know yeah. where, wherever you want to do your tests maybe easier to Mm-hmm. to um interesting to understand but on the other hand um Beijing is you know a bit more sophisticated and maybe not everyone is is used to it so i literally just only learned about it last last year really so i mean i've always been exposed to the base um theorem but um not really applying it in in r or python or anything so um mm-hmm. this is very um it's a little bit more challenging, I think, than the frequentist approach, but it's a cool sure. challenge, so I like it. I've I've never heard yes. about the difference before, but it makes so much sense because if you're deploying any like developed solutions and packages, the end result is always a p-value to tell you the significance, mm-hmm. like most of the algorithm I've been using. Mm-hmm. So it is difficult to explain what is p-value. Uh, especially to stakeholders mm. who are not really speaking the statistical language, and uh, exactly, especially you're delivering news that they, they don't want to believe. When your when your solution confirms what they're expecting, it, everything is going perfect. Uh, when we can test that, mm. okay, our default thought, our expectations are not exactly correct. Uh, very, very, very mm. real cases. I mean, it also sort of touches the point of, um, you know, marketing ethics, um, mm-hmm. where um, I think that IDFA, what the, well, the IDFA, just to, to get all the listeners on board is like pretty much the device ID um, of, of an, an Apple um, device. Mm-hmm. And um, it currently, under the, the current circumstances, is by default shared with any, you know, app Mm-hmm. um or um, website you go on with your device which obviously makes it very easy for marketeers or um, um or companies to actually um track user-based um, um data mm-hmm. um and then i think so from a marketing perspective mm, so no what's going to happen um apple i think last year announced that with the ios 14 update they're gonna um, change the default setting so that the device id is shared with everyone um, they're gonna actually turn it into um, opt-in which mm-hmm. means um, the user or the device owner is actually asked with a reasonably aggressive question i guess um, do you want your data to be shared with everyone or you don't, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, this is what, why I say aggressive. So, yeah. um, so from, from a user perspective, I want to start like this. I really like this approach, <laughs> even though I'm a marketeer, um, you yeah. know, it's a bit difficult to, to, to defend it, but obviously if I talk from my personal perspective and me being a consumer, um, um, and user, um, I like that, you know, the, the powerful companies actually give some thoughts about um, privacy and respect, um, you know, um, mm-hmm. personal data. Yeah. Um, but obviously it has um, mixed up the, the marketing industry a lot because, yeah. um, I mean, in the past years, I mean, there's not a lot of, not a lot of regulations in the internet or, um in, in marketing um, at all, which is um, not so good. Um, and then, you know, with GDPR coming in 2018, I think we have um, reached um, 
you know, which has been a big step because obviously they were, were asking the ethical question on can we just uh, share personal data with third parties and all of that. So mm-hmm. it sort of goes into the into the right uh, direction with Apple making a move and actually giving the consumer or user the choice of, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to see... Um, do you do you are you happy with us to share your data um, and all of that? So it def, like it gives the consumer the the decision, which is how it should be, no? Yes. Um, so for the marketing, it means going from a land of milk and honey, though, to a land of okay, we how are we gonna target the right people? How can we um, you know find the people who would be interested into our product? So yeah. Um, because there's also one thing and one argument that I like probably a bit from the marketing perspective is the advertising is not going to be less. Like the advertising is going to be the same amount. Like there will be display ads everywhere. There will be pop-ups everywhere and all of that, you know, it's just probably with um, not sharing your device ID anymore, it won't be as personalized. And obviously that means that marketers won't be as efficient as you know mm. as before and getting users and the right users and also maybe the people who are interested in their product um so yeah, yeah it's a it's a very interesting challenge and also obviously um for my personal project which is the which is retargeting um which is well completely based on targeting device ids that have been in our in our app or or in our game before mm-hmm. um makes it very very difficult um but it's also very cool and challenging to obviously work on solutions that um will will keep these projects running in the future mm-hmm. yeah it's a very fascinating topic when we talk about data ethics because we're tapping into mm. a world where the development and advancement is so much faster than the regulation could catch up mm-hmm. and because it's such an uncontrolled exactly. land people are really especially the big firms are, I, I believe they are taking advantage of this opportunity and the secure yes. growth. And I just don't see a near future where the policy can really take catch up and control them. So it's very important that we bring the awareness to consumers and us as consumers, we develop that awareness. I'm currently reading the book, Surveillance Capitalism. I don't know if you heard mm-hmm. about it, but it's talking about no i haven't heard no but i'll definitely write that down that sounds very interesting i recommend any data professionals or general audience to look into the book is it's a bit longer and a little bit drier but it really goes into detail how the tech giants are Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. extracting all the behavior surplus from our usage from any daily activity we do our mobile with us 24-7, with the geolocation sharing all the time, and with our Google Map experience and how the, the companies are collecting data to burst their ecosystem with the cars going on the street to take mm-hmm. photos of street view, and how the home assistants are listening to your conversation. They enjoy emerge into the space where no one cares about sharing their privacy. You're in your house, you talk about anything you want. Mm-hmm. But all this information are listened, thought pro- properly, and then they are used to retarget to you back for a marketing purpose at this moment, most likely. And it's mm-hmm. it really rings an alarm in the back of your head, head like when you're in, when we are enjoying yes. all this technology advancement. What does it really means to us if it is, keeps accumulating? Mm. And uh, it's yes. fascinating. And as a marketer. Especially, I believe the ethics here is very, there, there is a dilemma because for us, we want to profit. We want people's attention. We want to target as more accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. But we need to do that with accessing to as much detail as to, from people as possible. But do people really want to share it? And is it ethical to take advantage of those? But, but I believe nowadays as users are 
more aware and become more educated, there's also this one thing called as overexposure. So when you talk with yes. your friend over a certain topic, certain product, you say, oh, I have a wedding to, pre uh, to attend. And then next minute you go into your social feed, you see uh, advertisement maybe for a wedding gear and you know, oh, this is too much. Yes. And people start to be more resistant toward it. So I think yes. here we need to find a good playground to set the boundary. Exactly. Like there needs to be, um, I think also that marketing or anyone who works in marketing is sort of responsible of um, using the, the user data that they have available respectfully. Mm -hmm. And I probably believe, I mean, with GDPR, for example, in place and other laws um, in, in other you know, countries, for example, this is mostly set and most companies probably um, stick to the rules. But I totally agree that we need to find a good balance that we don't use it to, um, you know, but I feel like it's going into towards a direction where the con consumer um, or user is also more whole responsible. Mm -hmm. So giving them actually the option to choose so now you have to, even though no one reads the terms and conditions and there should be something in place that makes people, makes them more available to people. Like this is something that um, I think would be, I mean, who downloads an app and then it says, well, this app wants to have access to your um, geolocation, to your GPS, or this no, app wants to have access to your to your photos and you're like i really want to use it now so i'm just gonna consent you know so i think um there needs to be a bit more protection from from um there needs to be a bit more protection in, in place for that but um at least we we get those you know we know about it so i think the people know about it but they they don't really know what to do about it so um and also yeah, i think it's going towards the the right direction yeah yeah i'm with you i'm being very hopeful and i think as we talk about this more and educate us more we'll figure out certain solution but the thing i see mm -hmm. here is we're just not aware of the scale and the implication behind it now we know okay when we sign up the app once a day at the most we can see okay we need to uh, uh, agree to the terms and condition but unconsciously every day we're sending out thousands of data points of our privacy to different companies uh, to different fields on the on the planet yeah and they they also say they they also say it's the it's the new currency no like it's, exactly. if, if you think about it like google for example most of their products are for free so you mm -hmm. can search for free you can use their uh email um product for free yeah. Um, I don't know what else belongs to Google, but you can, this is, would be Facebook now, um, you know, WhatsApp you could use for free. Mm -hmm. um, but why? Because they actually making money by getting your data. No, not because okay. you're subscribing to something, but they, they can, they can use your data to, mm -hmm. to sell it on to advertisers. So it's um, our behavior. Yeah, no, it's very... mm -hmm. And as yes, the exactly. sentence goes, if, uh, the product is free to use, you are the product in the end. Exactly. So anyhow, exactly, and yeah. that's, we touched on some like very serious topics after diving into the algorithm, but I think it's totally a fascinating topic and everyone should start learning more and thinking more about it. And, but um, Agreed. I also want to touch upon how me and Alicia start to know each other because Alicia co-lead the chapter in Barcelona for Women in Data, which is an organization mm -hmm. that I'm very looking forward to get more involved into. And I would like Alicia to also share with our audience what is Women in Data and uh, what should people expect to get from the organization? How should people find it? Mm -hmm. So Women in Data, we just recently opened up this this chapter. Mm -hmm. It's like a non-profit organization um, originated from the States. Um, so it's basically a network um, of women in, in data jobs who, you know, just, well, basically the, the major points are to, to get the women together and, and talk and network and learn together and develop um with each other 
I think we're like five chapters in Europe. So as I was saying, it originates um, in the States. And uh, when I first came to Barcelona, I actually joined a few meetup groups that already are focusing on women in tech or women who code, uh, for example, some local groups. But I always had the feeling that they sometimes um, focus a little bit more on developing. So women who work in um, at developing or backend, front end, whatever you have all there. Mm-hmm. Um, and within those, or, or during those meetups, I actually found um, the odd uh, data scientist or data engineer um, or data analyst um, who were f- somehow feeling the same, and it sort of encouraged me to 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 to, to create a group. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been to to some um, events of data woman and data before, um, because obviously there's now with COVID also offers some um, online events. And I thought this is this is what Barcelona needs, and um, yeah, we we're gonna have our first meetup on the 11th of February, um, so which is already gonna be in 10 days. Mm-hmm. Um, so and you can reach up reach us um, via the meetup page. Um, just type in um, Barcelona Women and Data. Um, if you're here and if you're listening from somewhere else, um, obviously we have lots of um, local chapters. Um, there's, I think, om- uh, over 40 um, in the world. Mm-hmm. So, and if there isn't anyone in, or if there is no chapter in your your city, um, I mean, <laughs> I am very keen to make this a very um, big and global network. Um, so <laughs> feel free to open up the chapter yourself. Yeah. Um, so yes, but you can, you can find us on, on meetup. And, um, obviously if you want to reach out to me via LinkedIn, um, Alicia Hosh. <laughs> well, and, um, link your profile yeah, I can note all those links to meetup and the perfect resources we shared. Yes, and then I could, if you if you're interested um, to join us to listen to some cool, um, or inspiring talks from women in the field, um, then yeah, this uh, let me know and I'll um... <laughs> exactly exactly. Yeah. No, it's really exciting. Why we have this group specifically more tailored for women is because female data scientists are really underrepresented in the whole landscape of data scientists. And for me personally, I've been in many cases being the only female in the group, sitting in a group of data conversations. But I do think we have many, many good opinions and the skills to attribute to the field. And many people want to get started, but they, they are afraid. So this is a perfect group for you to get to know more about data, to get to know more about the peers. And for me personally, um, I, I really enjoy meeting Alicia and I talk about our work into more detail in a more nerdy and algorithm-oriented way. It's very satisfying. <laughs> and also it really helps you to learn. And the, the opportunity to mm. share is is amazing and personally i'm also seeking mentorship in the space so this whole network i i'm very looking forward to be more involved in it as well so for our listeners if you're interested exactly we'll see you at the meetup soon yes hopefully. <laughs> is there anything done, else yes. you would like to add alicia yeah, really also i have to say i really enjoyed this um this cool talk i think um also it's given me you know some some further um topics to to think about more and um i really enjoyed this so thank you very much great same from my side very inspiring conversation and thank you for sharing your journey your work and uh, to give our user a peek through about how is data scientists in marketing and I love our conversation about ethics and uh, also the women in data in Barcelona. Thank you so much for the, your time. And uh, I hope to see you soon, Alicia. Data for Future, episode 33. We'll see you next time. <laughs>